don't rob them of their chance because as I said before, this is the last chance, last boat, last train. This is it. Don't steal that from them. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Well, I'm back in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I slept in my own bed for the first time in like five nights after a wonderful tribal broadband boot camp. I'm here with one of my favorite guests, John Chambers, a partner at Connexon. What could be better? How you doing, John? Doing all right, Chris. It's always good to be with you. I don't think I, I told you this, but um, after we did the first first boot camp, I think it was after the first one, you and I were talking. You were like, you know, what are you, what are you doing here? Like you should be should be talking about fiber because the first one was a tribal wireless boot camp, and now we call them tribal broadband boot camps. We cover a lot of fiber and wireless. And uh, there was a part of me that was just thinking, how there's no way to really get into this. We're talking about these these areas that are very small, and and you were right. There's tribes doing great fiber networks. There's tribes doing great wireless networks. We make sure that people are exposed to both, and and so. What we did was we spoke to more folks. We brought in, uh, you know, people that had worked with fiber for a long time. And uh, and I'm happy to say that you were right. And we've some of the tribes we worked with uh, went on to then go on and get some of the, the money from the federal government to build fiber networks that they might not have otherwise done because they also thought it was too difficult uh, to just jump into. Uh, and none of them, none of them are taking it easy. But I just want to say that I was glad that you challenged me, and I'm glad that we, um, you know, sort of dug a little bit deeper to give a, a more comprehensive look at options on the table. Well, you know what I really think, though. <laughs> if you're a community in an area that that is eligible because there are unserved and underserved locations, eligible for the coming bead program. There is more than enough bead money to build a fiber network to every single unserved and underserved home, business, or other broadband serviceable location in the country. More than enough money. And the the most appropriate use of public money is to invest in long-term infrastructure. I won't say fiber up front. I'll say long-term infrastructure. 30-year infrastructure, 40-year infrastructure. The biggest mistake in the public broadband programs over the past uh, 10 to 15 years has been short-term fix after short-term fix, which of course means no fix because the speeds that are set out as the qualifying you know, eligible area this phony shibboleth that things need to be technology neutral. Who wants neutral? I want the best technology. Me, personally, I want the best, and so does every person I know. So invest not in something that is out of date before the money is spent. Invest in something that will be around for 30 years and still usable during the 30 years, and there is only one transmission medium that meets that particular criterion, and that is a fiber optic transmission. That, that's it. That, 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 that there's no second, and to the, to the extent people do run this, this national scam that fixed wireless is somehow a, a, even a, a second best or a third best or or a good enough or or 
we can do it. We can build fixed wireless because you can't build fiber here. To me, that's wrong on so many accounts, but I'll just mention one. And, and yours and my old friend, Doug Dawson, mentioned this a month or so ago in one of his posts when he talked about the lack of capacity of, of certain types of networks. And he was referring to wireless and he was referring to satellite, which also uses spectrum. The lack of capacity to deliver to all of the locations in a geographic area the requis requisite level of service. Yeah, that's what we're here today to talk about. Yeah, so in other words, if you look at the national broadband map, lots of people have complained about lots of different things in the national broadband map. Um, I, I tend not to complain about the map itself. The way I thought of the national broadband map since the beginning, and as you may know, I was around at the beginning. Um, it's data. And the FCC should release all the data and should, as part of its release of data, should, if it's not going to use its own expertise about network technologies or spectrum or capacity or anything that they want to talk about, then they should allow other experts to weigh in on which types of technology are really capable of delivering services throughout geographic areas. And by that, I mean one thing very specifically. The FCC has already done its counting and reported to NTIA as to the number of unserved, meaning lacking 25 megabits per second down, three megabits per second up service to every single location in the entire United States, which they consider to be broadband serviceable. And in doing so, they relied, the FCC relied upon the reporting by internet service providers. I don't take the position as some do, that, that, that an internet service provider self-reporting is going to be inherently false or overstating the case. I take a slightly different position, which is since the internet service providers don't just report their maximum advertised speed, but they also report the type of technology they use, that you can take that second piece of information in order to determine the first. Mm -hmm. Not the advertised speed, but the actual speed. And since it is interpreted by the reporting community, those who are submitting their broadband forms back to the FCC as to where they make service available, it is interpreted that if they can make service available to anyone, that's the maximum advertised speed that is upon offer. If they can make service to anyone, then anywhere that they can make service to, to anyone is considered served, served by whatever uh, uh, service offering they have. Here's an old notion, decades old notion from the telecommunications industry and other industries, a carrier of last resort obligation, Kohler. 
most people who listen to your your podcast probably know what what Kohler is about. So just in in brief, in the past, and it was a state obligation, not a federal obligation, nothing that the FCC uh, worked uh, worked with, but it 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 typically meant for the telephone industry that there was a single provider of telephone service who had that obligation last resort meaning they had to make service available to anyone that requested it in their service territory so i would take that notion and extend it just in one step because if you were a telephone company if you were an electric utility within your service territory and you were told you have to make service available then you did and you had to make service available these are monopolies but not just to one location you had to make service available to every single location and the requisite service that you were required to make available had to be available to everyone right. everyone at the same time if you ask a fixed wireless company that's reporting that they have service over some hundreds of miles of geography. And they report that they can make, say, 100 megabit per second down, 20 megabit per second up speeds available. That's their reporting. Guess what happens under the federal programs, the BEAT program? Suddenly that area is ineligible for service. If you ask that fixed wireless company, Okay, there's a, a, a thousand, five thousand, some number of, of locations, broadband serviceable locations in the geographic area where you're reporting. Can you make service 100 megabits per second down, 20 megabits per second up, available upon request? This is the FCC's requirement. Somebody requests it. It basically means if you're a wireline carrier, you can do a service drop and make service available. If you're a wireless carrier, it means fixed wireless, you can send a crew out and put an antenna on the house and, and receive the service. Can you make service available to every single location and have them subscribe to your 100 megabit per second down, 20 megabit per second up service? Everyone, every location, not one, not 10%, not, not 20%, everyone, can you do that? The answer is invariably no don't have the capacity. Now they might say, well, I could, if I were given the time to build more fiber deeper into the area, put up additional antennas, maybe get additional spectrum. I could, because after all, you could build fiber along roads and put antennas up at each mailbox and offer wireless if that's what you're calling it. That's not the question in the maps and it shouldn't be the question under beat and it shouldn't be the thing that disqualifies large parts of rural America from being eligible for bead. The question has to be, today, as of the date of the reporting, the maps that we're relying upon in order to determine eligibility, can you today make service available to every single location? Because when I build a fiber network, if you ask me where we report service availability, can we make service available to, to 100% of the locations, my answer is yes. Mm -hmm. That's the only question that needs to be asked now by NTIA and by the states in order to determine the most important missing ingredient in the B program, which is what is eligible for funding? Because the maps, according to the national broadband map, are deficient in this one respect. 
it's a wish by most of the reporting entities that they could make service available. It's not an actuality. And, and if you're going to exclude areas from eligibility because of the reporting of a bunch of fixed wireless companies, you are doing the greatest disservice to rural America since, oh, guess what? Since the last disservice, since the Ardoff program or the one before that, the Connect America Fund program or the one before that. All right. At some point, I got to get a word in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go ahead and you talk for a while and I'll listen to your dulcet tones. So, yeah, I think that you've you've touched on just about everything we wanted to touch on, but I wanted to go a little bit deeper on a couple of those things. One is, uh, you know, I, I will say that I have a little bit of a thin skin on some of this in part because some of my listeners and people that I respect, um, you know, there are fixed wireless providers that go out of their way to engineer networks in which they can do it. And this is not a categorical uh, problem. Now, there are small wireless companies that engage in this and the FCC lets them get away with it. But the thing that kind of shocks me is is, uh, and I think Doug Dawson covered this, is that it's the big, uh, you know, the big mobile companies that are dabbling in fixed wireless who seem to have the greatest impact where they might only be able to serve like one or 2% or 3% of an area. And so there might be a hundred homes and they're saying we could serve any, any three of these hundred homes. So we're going to take them all out of eligibility knowing that they cannot serve even even half of those homes or or 25% of those homes with the speeds they're claiming and the FCC lets them get away with it that that to me is it's it's a difference of scale than what i'd sort of gotten used to in terms of this scam of we can serve some so let's disqualify all from funding right so i think it's it's a solvable problem by state broadband offices and again i'll you know throw a lifeline out to NTIA to do something right for a change in and say before or in reviewing state broadband programs, NTIA can make it very clear that the maps for eligibility that they, they use, and of course the states can use their own maps, but if they're going to use the federal maps and they should advise the states about how to use the federal maps and how to use their own maps. But if they're going to use the federal maps, then they're permitted to ask this one question of any type of network that's been built, which is capacity constrained. And before everybody says, oh, everybody's capacity constrained because I've seen that. No, that's not true. It just isn't true. Spectrum-based networks are more capacity-constrained or particularly capacity-constrained. And so if you were to look at a map and say, oh, well, this area has these two wireless providers, both claiming service, so it's ineligible, both claiming 100 down, 20 up. Let's say one of them is, oh, just to make up a company, T-Mobile. And let's say somebody asked T-Mobile, so can you, one question to put to T-Mobile, can you make the requisite broadband service, meaning it will be considered served, available to every single location in your reported area here? Can you or can you not? It's just a yes or no question, every single one. If the answer is no, then good, thank you for that. You're advertising it properly. We're not criticizing you 
for your grand promotion that you're, you know, the largest wireless provider in the history of the globe. We're not saying that. We're just saying thank you for telling us that you cannot provide service to every single fixed location. And so, therefore, we're not counting that as served. Now, let me ask the second one. And maybe the second one says, well, I I, I can, but in a tighter area. I, I can, but only only if you, you know, shrink the, the uh, propagation characteristics of where I've got antennas and two of them. I don't know how they would answer specifically, but I think the question needs to be asked because otherwise you are consigning rural areas without real broadband service available to everyone to miss this boat, the bead boat. And you know this bead boat? It's the last boat. Get on this boat. There aren't any more boats coming. There will always be some funds that the FCC spends. Since since the FCC announced its Connect America Fund program starting in 2011, so we're now going on a dozen years, there have been tens and tens of billions of dollars. There will have been over $100 billion spent on rural broadband through Connect America Fund 1, Connect America Fund 2, the Connect America Fund Auction 2 Auction, the Ardoff Auction, the ACAM 1, the ACAM 2, the new ACAM thing, and ACAM stands for you know, Alternative Connect America Model, the CARES Act, the, the um, American Rescue Plan Act first part, the American Rescue Plan Act second part, and now BEAD. If you missed all those boats, get on the bead boat, man. <laughs> Last boat. But don't don't keep people off. Don't say no. You don't get on this boat because you already have service. You and I are both disenchanted with the FCC across different administrations. This isn't a matter of like, oh, it's not my person in charge, so I'm angry at it. This just to me seems like this specifically lack of sophistication in dealing with who is eligible it really for me it challenges the idea that 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 it is possible to have an expert agency like the whole point of an expert agency is to get things like this right to take it seriously and for the life of me i just i don't understand why they like i get i get the mapping there's all kinds of different reasons that they keep screwing it up and not wanting to take it seriously but like to me, this just is puzzling as to how they could be so juvenile about who's eligible for funding. A long, long time ago, when I was a congressional staff, the Republican staff director of the Senate Commerce Committee, the FCC was one of the federal agencies that committee oversaw. I became quite familiar with the FCC, um, that, that committee still today. That committee's job is to oversee quite a few federal agencies, and the FCC is one of the most significant of them. And I worked in the private industry where my job took me to the FCC frequently. I worked at the FCC. I was in the senior executive service and given the title chief of the Office of Strategic Planning and Policy Analysis. I worked with some of the smartest people I've ever known. 
there's a fellow named Evan Querrell who who created the entire concept of spectrum auctions and, and implemented that at the FCC, brought in, not just brought in tens of billions of dollars to the, to the public by auctioning off spectrum instead of giving the spectrum away, which had been the, the past practice. I worked with a fellow named Henning Schultzrini who was the inventor, co-inventor of session initiation protocol, the, the voice protocol over which you know, most voice traffic runs today. Brilliant people, really hardworking people. Um, now, I don't know. I mean, you know, historically, the FCC was seen as an agency that was captured by its industry, the telecom industry telephone industry back in the day and there's still an awful lot of good people there and there's still an awful lot of hard-working people um washington's broken in general and the fcc is an agency that is as broken as well you can't have an agency that's so tied to political constraints that they can go for you know years as a 2-2, can't vote, can't adopt new orders. I don't know if the answer is something like Ofcom in the in the UK, in which it's a, a professional staff and, an, and a, a, an administrator, a single person. Um, the FCC is a creation of Congress. It's not part, it's, so it's not an executive branch agency. Mm-hmm. Um, and Congress did that intentionally so that Congress you know, had some authority over the FCC. So I doubt Congress will ever let the executive branch um, set up a, a the, that is take on the roles that the FCC today does, the important roles, the, the, the management of the commercial side of spectrum. NTIA manages the, the government non-commercial side. Or now, the regulation has become pretty light, not much regulation of broadband, not much regulation of voice. In fact, it's kind of silly to regulate voice these days. I was down in Florida a couple of months ago um, at, a, at an annual meeting of an electric co-op, the Scambia River Electric Cooperative. I flew down to Alabama. I drove down to Florida. Um, the meeting was held in a uh, high school gymnasium. I've been to a bunch of co-op annual meetings. You get different sizes, different turnout. This one, the, the gymnasium was packed. I was there to uh, describe our process for building a fiber network because we had come to an agreement with the electric cooperative there that we would build a fiber network to all of their members. And we, Connexon, Connexon Connect, our ISP, would be a service provider. So I was there to tell them, what services to expect, the pricing, how long it would take, what they could see, what could they expect to see. Um, After I was done speaking, a woman came up to me and said, um, thanked me, first of all, said that she had a heart condition. Her heart condition is such that her heart beats at 25 beats per minute, she told me. So she lives in fear of of heart failure 
And she told me that she lives in a rural area and loves living there, wouldn't wouldn't move. Her husband lives, uh, excuse me, her husband works um, in the Gulf on one of the oil rigs. And so he's gone a lot. And so she's alone a lot. She told me that the copper network that serves her house is so degraded that that she can't get decent internet access and and oftentimes, especially when it rains, she can't even make a phone call. This brings us back to the carrier of last resort, because it wasn't just a matter of building out. It was a matter of certain maintenance standards and uh, and they got money uh, to help make sure they could do that. There's a whole bargain. And many of the states, including Florida, specifically chose to remove that requirement um, overseeing that carrier of last resort obligation. So helpful knowledge for where you might be going here. Yes. So the thing she lives in fear of is that she has. She doesn't live anywhere near any healthcare facilities because everyone who lives in rural America knows that healthcare facilities are basically packed up and gone. Nobody thinks they can make a buck out of it. She lives in fear that she's going to have to make a 911 call and the copper network won't carry her 911 call. Then she'll be alone and she'll never make it. So she came to me to thank me that we were going to build a fiber network, including to her home. And then she said words that will live with me for the rest of my life, which is, she said, I heard about your wife. She said, I know there's nothing. She said, I know there's nothing I can say. But let me at least tell you that you may have lost your wife. You're going to save my life. So thank you. As you just pointed out, Chris, somebody else has been paid, given subsidies for decades to keep that copper network, maintain that copper network, paid as recently as last year. Probably still getting a subsidy. I'm not going to mention which of the carriers. Anybody can guess which of the carriers. It's an old bell system. You know, nobody could complain to the FCC and point that out and have expect the FCC or a state public service commission to do anything about it. What bead is being spent on this gets to my point about every location. Here's my one sort of plea to the fixed wireless industry. And I spent a good part of my career working in the wireless industry. So I know a little bit. Don't put people like that woman in a position where her area wouldn't be eligible for funding so she can't get a network built. We don't need bead to build to her. But there are a lot of women and men and families, older people who are in that same position in rural America. Don't rob them of their chance, because, as I said before, this is the last chance, last boat, last train. This is it. Don't steal that from them. Fess up to the capability of your network. For God's sake. What do you think you're getting out of it by claiming that you can do something that you can't? I, I have this problem and I get all, you know, self-righteous, <laughs> but I'll wear that. I spend my days 
I still get on airplanes. I still travel to rural America. I still go out and meet people. I meet them where they are, where they live, where they work, where they congregate. I hear their stories. Don't take from them. There's been enough taken from them already. And if I were a state broadband officer, if I were at the NTIA, or if I were back in my old job, I would stand up for them. I'm not there anymore. I'm here and all I can do is, you know, build my little networks and talk to people like you and hope that some people will do the right thing sometimes. Well, this this leads to a final point, which, you know, it's hard to it's hard to follow that. And in knowing also that there's uh, hundreds, thousands of people that you've your networks have already rescued from the the rot from uh the the copper rot and that sort of a thing stories you'll never know um you know i i do think people who are working in this space it can become easy to forget that this is life or death i mean this isn't just it isn't even necessarily an individual calling 911 these networks are carrying uh all the first responders traffic uh in a, in a lot of cases um so this is serious business and we need to take it seriously um but it it does strike me that the, this test a reason that I could imagine the Federal Communications Commission not wanting to employ it is because it then starts to get to the point where then you have to ask questions about the cable companies and whether they can deliver 120 simultaneously to everywhere that they claim. And now this is not the same problem of scale. Doxis 3, 3.1 can get the job done. Doxis 4 almost certainly will be able to, from what I can tell. At the same time, you know, I, I see Charter Spectrum out there telling the FCC it can deliver 100 megabits by 20 megabits to every single customer that they have in California and telling the CPUC with a different breath that, no, they shouldn't have a standard of requiring uh, 20 megabits up to every customer because they can't do that. <laughs> and so, um, you know, you know, you know about cable plant um, and, and some some listeners will, some listeners won't. It's variable and, and there's different factors, but um when you get into this question, um, at a certain point, I think the FCC is willing to to piss off the wisps. I don't know if the FCC is willing to piss off the cable companies. Uh, and, I, and in fact, I assume that's why we have a 100 by 20 megabit definition. The 20 is there for the cable companies to to sneak under it, is my impression. So does that does that strike you as as accurate, or how do you react to that? Well, look, I I started in broadband with the cable industry and the early 90s, mid 90s, when when broadband first was a thing. I mean, cable invented broadband, not the telecom industry. I, I'm reluctant to, to say that cable doesn't deliver broadband because cable has defined broadband for decades. It isn't as good as fiber. There's no doubt about that. Uh, what what you're starting to see, of course, in urban areas is a lot of fiber construction to compete with cable. What you're starting to see in rural areas by electric cooperatives and 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 other you know new companies is is fiber builds because if you're investing today, you'd invest in fiber, and that competes with cable. I'm reluctant to say that cable can't deliver. 100 down, 20 up everywhere, even though they can't. <laughs> I'm not reluctant to know what the capability is, but to use that as a way to dismiss cable as a, a service provider 
a, 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 a transmission medium that's delivering a service that meets the standard of broadband. I don't like the approach of saying served, unserved. That's never been historically what the Federal Communications Commission did. And, and it isn't the test set out by Congress in the 1996 Act. That test was high cost, where it is high cost. And that high cost notion continues to this day. It's something that NTIA and the FCC still pursue. High cost, where is a subsidy required? You can follow that by saying, well, since somebody built here already, maybe the subsidy isn't required. But the Connect America cost model, the alternative Connect America cost model, those are all high cost models to say where the subsidies should go based on density, terrain, cost of building networks. That's what that's about. I've always thought that was a better approach. In a high cost area, there should be some ongoing support and, and, and the rest of it, I mean, use the bead money the best we can, but there will be at some point the need for some ongoing support, which is what the FCC really has done over the many years for high cost areas and get away from this notion because here's the problem with the served unserved. I am old enough to remember, oh yeah, it was only a half a dozen years ago when 4-1 was considered served 10 years ago, 4-1, then 10-1, then 25-3. And now 120, 100 down, 20 up. All that occurred in the last decade. The FCC has, has something in the order of eight, 12 different definitions of speed. Speed's the wrong thing. Speed's the wrong thing. I don't even like the asymmetry way of designating speed. That's a technology-specific indication. For all the people that are high and mighty about technological neutrality, the speed 100 down 20 up as you point out is a technology specific speed you don't go to somebody that builds a fiber optic network and say hey you're capable of 100 down 20 up is that what you deliver they don't even know what you're what what are you talking about it's a two-way network we don't devote a lesser portion of our spectrum cable uses spectrum to the upstream than we do to the downstream so it's technology specific as you're saying for people who aren't as familiar you build a network and it's capable of delivering a more than a gigabit to the home and then if someone's paying less then you're picking a, a number using software to throttle down their capacity uh, and so it, you could be like, oh, yeah, we're actually a 78 by 46 and a half network like you can do whatever you wanted to at that point we build XGS PON networks. You know, the X stands for 10. G stands for gigabit. S stands for symmetrical. Is that what the X is for? I never put that together. I should have known that. <laughs> Capable of 10 today, XGS PON, 10 gigabits per second, symmetrical to every location. The highest tier we sell is two gigabits per second, and we don't throttle down. We throttle it up a little bit so people actually get two gigabits per second because you can deliver more. Right? Um, I, you know, today I don't see the need of deliver offering five gigabits or ten gigabits. Your computers, your devices, all that they can't right. use that anyway. But two, here's the the point that should 
anybody that's a state representative, congressman, senator, anybody who, who represents a rural area, here's the only thing I'd like them to know when they're trying to think of what's good enough for rural America. For two-thirds of our customers subscribe to services of a gigabit or higher. A third of our customers subscribe to two gigabits per second symmetrical service. Two, people are spending their own hard-earned money for two gigabits per second service. Don't tell me about 100 down, 20 up. You offer them two gigabit per second, guess what they subscribe to? So 100 down, 20 up is not broadband to me. Multi-gigabit. That's broadband. So no, I don't think cable at all delivers what is available now in large parts of the country. That goes back to the test that was set out by Congress in 1996, which is still a better test than anyone that's been written, which is that rural areas should have services that are reasonably comparable to the service available in urban America. What is available in urban America today is multi-gigabit symmetrical speeds. That's what the universal service program should be paying for. Why? Because that is, back to my earlier point, that's a long-term investment in a network. Not today, not yesterday. If you think you can go out there and build 100 down, 20 up and sell rural America, you know what? I want you to compete with me. That's who I like to compete against. I love to compete against people who are delivering 100 down, 20 up because we'll eat their lunch. Well, John, uh, I appreciate your time today. Uh, you know, I, I did see your dog uh, poke his nose up against that uh, that window behind you. So I don't know if uh, you have a walk in your future, but I, I appreciate the conversation. Our dog's name is Bubbles, and he is a delight. <laughs> He looked delightful. Uh, I um, I look forward to catching up again with you soon. I hope um, maybe I'll run into you at one of these events and we can do another live interview. But thanks for jumping on the Zoom with me today. Thanks, man. Good to see you, Chris, as always. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle's at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>